0: Uh, would you pray with me Father you are great and gracious our creator our sustainer you're you're omnicompetent you have all power all knowledge and uh, and we find ourselves both frail and fallen and we need your grace in this moment, so I pray that as I, as I open your word and I speak, help me to do a good job with it, so that we as your people are built up and you are glorified. Help us to understand a little bit more about the people in the context of the book of Leviticus and see how that's fulfilled in Jesus, so that he's honored and followed and so that our trust is in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be talking about, or we're going to be in Leviticus this morning, Leviticus 11 through 15. And what we've talked about so far is that, you know, God's presence is an issue, and he's holy, and in his presence is absolute holiness, absolute purity. And if people from a fallen world who are fallen themselves are going to come into his presence, they're going to have to be made clean. And so the first week or, you know, a couple of weeks back, we talked about the need for sacrifice. And then the last time out, we talked about the need for a priest. And in a verse, or chapters 11 through 15, we're talking about the priest's duty to recognize what's unclean. Like, right, if, if you come from the realm of the unclean, you're part of that yourself and you're going to go into the holy, you're going to have to be cleansed. So let's, let's frame this out a little bit, and it starts with Leviticus 19.2, and God tells his people, it's central to the book of Leviticus. God says, I'm holy, um, and therefore, if, as, as my people, you're going to be holy. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and so that it makes us think, you know. When you think about God in His absolute perfection, in His holiness, and we think about who we are, fallen people living in a fallen world, we think if we would ever have fellowship with God, it must be because He's going to compromise His holiness. And what we find in Leviticus that ultimately gets fulfilled in the gospel through Jesus is that's not what happens. So, here's the framework. We have this, what we've talked about is the voltage rule. The voltage problem. God takes residence up with his people, and the problem is, in other words, he's setting up camp with them. The tabernacle, his tent, is in the middle of all of God's people's camp, right? He's right in the middle, and so their formation is like that. But the problem is, he's holy and they're not. And the rule is, you know, again, what we've called the voltage rule his holiness is electric. You come into contact with it. And if you're not made clean, if you're not made holy, you die. If God's holiness comes into contact with anything unclean, what results? Death is the result because He's absolute purity. Now the answer to that isn't to flee God's holiness. You know, you might think, well look, there's voltage there. I need just like what you would find in, you know, in, these, in these places where there's a, a warning sign. Like listen, high voltage, don't touch. The, the answer is leviticus 19 2 it's not to flee god's holiness you shall be holy for i am holy it's to be made holy and you can't do that yourself it's going to take the work the gracious work of god to do that It's, it's it's the answer is not for god to compromise his holiness it's for people like you and me to be transformed to be made what we weren't previously and here's why Because life is found in the presence of God. Holiness is found in the presence of God. Outside of God's presence is death and unholiness. So the response to God's power was, in their context, some 1,400 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. It was and is not to flee the holy, but to be holy. And that's going to come through the gracious work of God. And then finally, how are they going to do this? Uh, they, they need this priest or the, 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 these priests have a duty to help the people navigate this problem that God is absolute purity and his holiness and they live in a realm of uncleanness and they're unclean themselves. How are they going to do that? And priests are going to help them navigate that. It's part of what the framework of chapters 11 through 15 are. But if you look at Leviticus 10, Verses 10 through 11, you get to see what the priest's job description is. And that's the third thing in the framework. Leviticus is kind of the priestly handbook, and what does it say there? You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, and to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has given them by Moses. So what is a priest supposed to do? He's got this function in the camp. He's consecrated in service to the Lord in the tabernacle, right? In the presence of the holy. So they've been made holy. And so their job is to discern what's unclean, make a distinction between that, and then to teach the people. And that's what chapters 11 through 15, priestly handbook, they're going to look at these and they're going to help the people navigate uh, through this. Now, little note before we get started on that word unclean. This is a problem for us kind of modern people, sophisticated people. Like, our our ethical reference is a little bit skewed. So if you look at it like that, we're going to have to orient ourselves to the holy. We assume from our frame of reference that we know what's right and wrong, and, you know, just because you have a sense of that, or what's good and what's true and all of that, and you don't necessarily. And so we're going to have to orient ourselves. So we hear the word unclean and our tendency could be to get offended by that, okay? So I'm going I'm to make some comments on it now, and then after we go through chapters 11 through 15, I'm going to address it again just to try to help us some several thousand years later understand this better. But uncleanness doesn't mean that the person is not loved by God. It doesn't mean that that person individually sinned. They might have, they might have become unclean because they personally sinned. But the reference is not necessarily saying that the person is bad. It is a recognition that they live in a fallen world and they're a fallen person and that they get contaminated by it. All right. So it's in you and it's around you and you have the, the tyranny of sin and death all around us. All right. And so they're in, a, in an environment of sin and death and um, they become, what, like our word would be, contaminated by it. They become unclean by it. And so, in terms of thinking ceremonially about this, there are certain things that would contaminate them or make them unclean going into the presence of God. Now, the rationale is this. The tabernacle is the new Eden. That's God's realm. The realm of life and absolute holiness and purity. And outside of the tabernacle is the realm of death. And uncleanness, and so they've got to have these categories, these regulations that we're going to look at are informed by contamination by sin and death. the sin-death contact. Okay, something comes into contact with sin and/or death; it makes it unclean, and it can't come into the presence of God. So here are the three big words. There are other ways that people talk about this, but I want you to think about the the word in the middle is clean. Clean. That's a, that's kind of a neutral word, and on on this side is unclean, and what this means, like I said, it's not necessarily that the person sinned, but they've come into contact with sin death. So maybe they've committed themselves, or they've done something that um, affected their status, and um, you know. Uh, and then on the other side is the holy. And this is absolute purity, this is where God resides, um, the priests have been made holy so they can work in His presence. And so here, the, this word in the middle, you've got unclean and holy, and this word in the middle, this, this category can be influenced by either side. So the clean can be made unclean by coming into contact with the unclean. And the clean can be made holy by coming into contact with the holy in the right way. Okay, And so what God tells you is like, listen, you're going to be holy for I am holy. And what you're going to find is the unclean becomes clean. They have to be cleansed. And then they're consecrated to belong to God. Okay, So that's, that's the difference. Leviticus is not these random rules, but they're resolving a problem. And the problem is this. The problem of the fall from Genesis 3 is since you and I are fallen into sin, how in the world... Would we ever come into presence, uh, into the presence of the holy God? And the voltage rule says you can't do that in an unclean state. You'd be struck dead. And God will condescend, but he's not going to do that and compromise his holiness. He's going to set up camp in your midst, and he's going to draw his people to make them holy. Now, all of this is going to ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. So, so what are these. What are these priestly duties that we're talking about? So, so priests would offer the sacrifices, right? They would mediate, um, be a mediator for the people, but they also had that duty in Leviticus 10 to recognize the the difference between the clean and the unclean, the common and the holy, and to teach the people. So, what are those categories? Well, we're going to look at four in these chapters. And the first one is in chapter 11. And it's to distinguish between... um, uh, the unclean and the clean among creatures for food, okay? So, you, you had this, and I want you to think about this. This is from outside the body. Come into contact with something, and it could make you unclean. So, uncleanness and cleanness. If you were considered unclean, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, and if you're considered clean, it doesn't mean that you're automatically where you ought to be. This is ceremonially. Now, This chapter, chapter 11, is very big. And so if it divides into categories, what he's telling them is what foods can you eat and what foods can you not. What are clean and unclean. And so if you want to do a little survey, animals that are clean look like they're unmixed or they don't have this, uh, uh, this scavenging connection with the dead, something like that. But we don't know. There are these categories when we think about um, clean and unclean, that they look like they're just declared by God. But let me give you the framework in chapter 11. In verse 2, notice that he talks about animals that are on the earth, you know, land, land animals. And he said there's certain kinds that you can eat and, and kinds that you can't. Uh, verse 3 gives you the criteria. Whatever parts the hoof uh, and is cloven-footed and chews the cud... For whatever reason, I think when choose the cud, I think about my uncle Lex, uh, right? Uh, but that's just where I grew up. Um, choose the cud is like a grazing animal that'll right chew on the grass that it grazes. Um, but those clean animals, we would think kind of more domesticated livestock. But other things that you're not to eat are are things like the rock badger. And i got to say, I've never been in the mood for rock badger nuggets or anything like that. But back in their context, you couldn't eat it. So there's the category, starting in verse 2 of land animals. By the time you get to verse 9, it's those in the waters, right? Fish. And they make a distinction between, you know, the the things. And here's the criteria in verse 9. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales... Whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat, but the others don't. In other words, catfish are off limits, which I personally agree with. I think if you eat dead things, I wouldn't eat a vulture. Why? Because it's gross and it eats dead things. I wouldn't eat a catfish. Why? Because it's gross. It eats dung and dead things. And God agreed back then, right? He's like, you can't do that. But part of the rationale may be contact with refuge refuge and death and stuff like that, but we don't know that for sure. Uh, By the time you get to verse 20, winged insects. They're basically all off limits except grasshoppers, which 12-year-old boys know because they've lost bets before, right? But there were categories that, but if you don't think this way, it's because you don't live in a world in which everything you could possibly eat matters, right? You just, you go to the store, you open your fridge or your pantry or whatever, and you're not, you don't think about scarcity in that regard, but they did. And so these were the kind of insects, grasshoppers and, and crickets and stuff like that. I, I don't think I'd bet on a cricket myself. I think those things are too gross. And then finally, look, or I say finally, um, another couple of things. Verse 24 starts with this concept as it doesn't matter if it's clean or unclean. You can't touch the carcass, the contact with death. So he says, and by these, you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening. You come into contact with death. Um, that's there. Verse 29, um, there are these swarming things. Things like the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, uh, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. You know, don't eat those things. It sounds good to me. I'm not interested in eating any of those things, right? Whoever touches them when they are dead, this is verse 31, shall be unclean until the evening. Uh, verse 39, again, talking about touching the carcass and, and that sort of thing. So there's this, seems to be this association with death or something that's mixed. One of the things that we don't understand that they clearly do, Moses' audience, they enjoy this kind of shared information. So if you look back to, say, Genesis 9, everything talked about here seems to be assumed. And like this frame of reference that they would know. Um, all these clean animals can be offered as sacrifices and the unclean can't. Now, what does that tell you? Remember, part of the sacrificial system is fellowship, that they're going to sit down and they're going to eat with God. God's people are going to eat what God eats, you know, by, by reference, right? by analogy. They're going to image God by sharing a table with Him, eating the same kinds of food uh, that He eats why can we now eat whatever? You know, why is, why is bacon on the table, you know, literally now? Well, in Acts 10, uh, you know, uh, there's this, this vision, and all these foods are declared clean, you know. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, why, tells Peter, why do you call unclean what I've declared clean, which is something that he did in Mark 7. It's the power of Jesus. The reason you can eat whatever, I suppose if you want to eat a gecko, you're fine to do that. You know, just go at it. Jesus declares all those clean. He's got the power to do that. What's the difference between him and you? Well, lots of things, but here, I'll give you an example. When he comes into contact with a leper, now, if you or I back in their culture came into contact with a leper, You would be made unclean. That isn't what happened when Jesus, the power went the other way. When Jesus came into contact with a leper, that leper was healed and and cleansed. Okay, that's his power. So the, the basic reason in Acts 10 and Mark 7 is that we no longer live under this covenant in Leviticus. That... This isn't what we live by. Jesus has abrogated this covenant. We live under this new covenant that he established, not by just taking this old one and putting it, you know, setting it off to the side and putting in a new one. No, what Jesus did was he actually fulfilled this old one, this old one that pointed to him. What does Leviticus talk about? How can you be made clean and holy and acceptable before God. And Leviticus, what it does is it points to this in this kind of shadow way, in this analogy way. And what Jesus does is he, fills this, he fulfills this. This is how you do it in a real way. Not just ceremonially clean. Here's how you would actually be clean. This is how you would actually be made holy by my blood. So he fulfilled the old covenant and did by doing what it, what it could never actually do, but pointed to. How would you be made clean or forgiven or healed? Well, by the power of Jesus. By His blood. Now, look at verses... Let's, we'll wrap up chapter 11 here. Look at verses 43 through 45. And the point you're going to see is that they're to recognize this in terms of the kind of food that they eat because they're going to image their God. They're to recognize His holiness and to honor that and to live distinctly as belonging to him. Verse 43, you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. Look at verse 44, for I the Lord, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. And he, again, he reiterates, I'm holy, for you sh- so you shall be holy. All right, What he's laying out there is you belong to me as my distinct people, and you're going to image who I am in my holiness. Okay, So the, part of the priest's duty is to recognize and to teach the people, these are clean, these are unclean. The second thing is in chapter 12. And uh, it, it shows up in the process of childbirth. Chapter 12, so short little chapter, um, there are theories about why, why would this make somebody ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, but distinguish this from chapter 11. The food you eat is from outside the body, childbirth, inside the body, right? Um, cleanness versus uncleanness, again, doesn't say the person has done something wrong necessarily, uh, doesn't mean you're, if you're unclean that God doesn't love you, uh, or anything like that. Uh, Childbirth. One point in to, or one way to reinforce this is to notice this, or take note of this. Childbirth is not sinful. It's not sinful for a woman to give birth. Early on, be fruitful and multiply. That's part of the deal. God doesn't say, hey, do this. By the way, you doing the thing that I said to do is sin. That's not how it works. There's some theories about this. I don't want to dwell on this too long because it's not the big point. Uh, but part of it is to say if it's sin-death contact that makes you unclean, then what, whatever leaves the body is no longer attached to the living body and it represents something, something dying. Okay? Um, something temporary, something not enduring, and that sort of thing. So perhaps the issue is like releasing, we'll see this later, like skin or bodily fluids or, or something like that. But, you know, some people attach, well, there's, there's uh, pain in childbirth as is, is, uh, part of uh, the fallout of the fall and, and whatnot. But look at the framework in chapter 12. And verse 2 refers to the process if a woman gives birth to a male child. And then in verse 5, the process if she gives birth to a female child. Now, there are certain numbers. You can do the math if you like. Uh, I was told there wasn't going to be any math, but you can do the math if you like. Uh, but it's longer for a female child than a male child. And the question comes up because we're moderns, right? Why is that? And the short answer is we don't know. Now, they assume that, again, Moses' audience enjoys shared information, so some questions that we would have living in a different time, place, and culture are questions that they wouldn't have. And the theories about about that uh, are like the distinction between perhaps um, anticipating menstruation and stuff like that, you know, kind of technical reasons that I'm sure while you would love me to go into detail, I will forego at this moment, okay? The point is is that the process of giving birth to a male child or a female child, the result is to make her ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And then when you get to verse 6, it says, and when the days of her purification are complete. In other words, she's got to wait a certain amount of time. Just like if you came into contact with, in the previous chapter, a dead carcass, you were going to be unclean until the evening. She had a certain amount of time, and then she was supposed to come and bring a sacrifice. Here's kind of the cool thing. She had to bring a sacrifice to go through to complete this process. But notice verse 8. What if she can't afford that? What if she can't afford a lamb? What does God say? I'm worthy of a lamb. Can't bring a lamb? How hard is it to get a lamb? He doesn't say that. In verse 8, he says, if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. And uh, atonement will be made that way. What God is saying here is I'm not going to exclude people based on their social status. Um, it doesn't matter where in the social ranks you are. I'm calling all my people to me to be, so that atonement could be made for them so that they can be purified. So there's chapter 12. The point is that this uncleanness is not sin. It represents that we live in a world of sin and death. It's constant. It's permeating. And un- uncleanness is like this pollution uh, that surrounds us and that you have to be cleansed. Uh, you have to go through that process. We, we all live as fallen people in this fallen world and, and uh, in that situation recognizing that we've got to come into the presence of the holy. All right, the third thing. So what the priest does is he helps people. Uh, he teaches them about discerning what they can eat. Uh, about the process after childbirth. And then the third thing is this process of recognizing skin problems and what to do about them, all right? It's kind of rot of the skin, but also other superficial things like clothes and uh, mold in houses and and that kind of thing. It covers chapters 13 and 14. Now, we swing back. This is outside the body. Again, cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, It doesn't mean if you're clean, God loves you, and if you're unclean, God doesn't. So, broadly, these chapters talk about uh, things that come off the body or leave the body or things like that. So, it uses, if you notice in chapter 13, verse 2, it uses this little phrase, leprous disease. Um, You know, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, uh, Leviticus is fascinating, isn't it? Um, And it turns into, it's like a teenager going, oh no. Um, It turns into a case of leprous disease uh, on the skin of his body. He shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or one of the priests. This word for leprosy isn't what we think of as the medical definition of leprosy, like this chronic enduring disease. thing that's ultimately going to kill the person. It's just talking about these various diseases or various problems on the skin. It could be a rash or some kind of dermatitis or whatnot. Um, In the houses where they talk about that in chapter 14, they're probably talking about mold. Um, But these are things that reflect, why are these problems such that they should be recognized? Was it, is this medical? Is that what a priest does? Was he like a medicine man, a holy man? No, these are, these are what we might categorize as like kind of a medical adjacent. But a priest's job isn't to go, oh, you, you know, you got a little problem on your skin. Uh, here's how we're going to treat that. Keep in mind, the whole deal is the presence of God in their camp. And there's something in the realm outside of that where sin and death contact affect that, and they have to be cleansed to be able to come before him um, Uh, To address what they need to. All right. So these are things that reflect living in a world with the presence of of sin and death. So um, let me just just for the sake, let's do a little survey of of chapter thirteen, and we'll be quick on this. If you start at the beginning, um, in in verse two, there's this first set of tests, and it's like a, a swelling, an eruption, or a spot. And then there's a, in verse 9, starts a second set of tests, raw flesh. Uh, In verse 18, there's a third set of of tests, a boil that turns into a scar. I mean, this is pretty gnarly stuff. This is made for junior high boys. If there's a chapter in Leviticus, that is. I mean, there's part of it, it's like, hey, you've got this spot, and if the hair in the spot changes colors and whatnot, that's how you read it. Um, The fourth set of tests is a burn, a burn. In, in verse 24, verse 29, there's a fifth set of tests on the, on the head or in the beard for a man or a woman. There's, a, there's an establishment of cleanness if a, if a person, how they, can, how they can do that in verses 38 and 39. Verses 40, or verse 40, I, I think we should all read this together. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald, he is clean. There are men in this room, amen, right? You know, there's like... I knew it, right? I knew. But remember, clean, unclean doesn't mean necessarily that, that God loves you. Well, there's this. <laughs> After that, at the end of chapter 13, it talks about what do you do if there's something on the, on the, on the surface of your clothes that it gets affected? Or chapter 14 uh, you know, uh, how, how do you go through this elaborate pl- process for being cleansed and at the end of chapter 14, you know, mold in the house? What, there's these processes that they had to go through. We don't want to cover those in detail for the sake of time. I want you, though, to see the severity of this. Look at chapter 13, verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Right? He's, he's excluded. You get to see the severity of that. Remember what I talked about. when What changes this? When Jesus comes into contact with the lepers, they don't contaminate him he transforms them. It's the power of Jesus, who He is and what He's, what he's done. Alright, uh, last section, uh, turn to chapter 15 and we'll, uh, you know, this is explaining and addressing um, cleanness and uncleanness from bodily discharges. Bodily discharges. Um, so, this is the realm of sex and sexual function and sexual dysfunction. And, and basically, again, keep in mind that uh, sex in marriage uh, is not a sinful act. It's still something that would ritually make somebody unclean and that they would have to wait a certain time, go through this, this process. And so it swings back to inside the body. There's this chiastic structure. If you look at chapter 15, uh, a chiasm goes something like this, A, B, C, B, A. Okay, got it? A B C B, A, and the A's, you know, they parallel each other, the B's parallel each other, and the C stands alone. And so here, if you look at the A's in the structure, the beginning and end of chapter 15, what you find is the serious case of male discharge and a serious case of female discharge. In other words, there's probably, you know, with the, with the, with the man, it could be something like uh, an STD, With a woman, you could think of an example of that might be the the woman who has this issue of blood who Jesus heals, right? So, those parallel each other. Um, the, The B, verses 16 and 17, male emission of semen, and verses, let me get the verses right, 19 through 24, female menstruation. Those would parallel each other, and then all centered on verse 18, um, look at this verse 18 if a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening so here he's talking about okay you've got sexual dysfunction you have got sexual dysfunction what comes out of that is uh, you know a, a, again ceremonially unclean can be something that's a case of sin It could not be related to sin at all what's the big idea God is telling his people, I am who I am, I'm holy, and so you're going to live in a way that reflects this. And the purpose of it um, is later in the chapter. I'll come back to this in just a moment. Let me give you a, a little illustration to kind of help us picture this, right? Because we started with clean, unclean, and holy. And if the unclean is going to come into the holy, it's not. you can't avoid God, if you want life and righteousness, which is what you were made for, what you desperately need, you've got to be made clean uh, to come into contact with the holy, okay? We have a lot of trouble with this category because we go, wait, God is calling me unclean? I just want you to know that that's the the least of your worries, okay? so, so, a while back, I had a dog. I'm an Oklahoma State fan. It's the, uh, the OSU Cowboys, the, the Pokes, you know, Go Pokes is what... I had a cow dog, and we called him Poke. He was a, a beautiful Australian Shepherd. He's a brilliant dog. He was a red Merle. He's athletic, super smart, smartest... Uh, dog I ever had, most disobedient dog I've ever had, you know. I remember a friend of mine said, oh, he's such a good dog. I said, no, he's not. He's our dog, um, you know, but he's not a good dog. But you could teach him any trick, you know, a beautiful dog, And but he was an Australian shepherd. And if you know anything about this, this kind of dog, they shed all the time. So you can brush them every day, and you're going to get hair every day. You can't you can't keep on top of it. You can't, like, do some kind of a seance to will it away. You can't, like, there's, no, there's none of this. They're just going to constantly shed. Well, uh, you know, Poke was a house dog, which, you know, most cow dogs are, I guess. But we, we let him in the house and all of that stuff. And so he was, he was, in a way, before we had kids, he was sort of our first child, right? I mean, I know, dorky and all of that. But we taught him a lot of tricks and all of that, and he was kind of part of the family. His hair was everywhere. And, you know, after we had kids, if Kara was out of town for a couple of days, you know, this constant shedding and, and all of that, you know, and Kara like, was really good at keep the house clean and all of that and, and keep on top of it, you know, vacuuming all the time. But if she went out of town, I mean, it was me, the kids, and the shedding dog. And let's just say I was no match for this problem. And so, you know, the kids and I would be eating around this little plastic table, you know, watching, you know, some like Disney or whatever. And next thing you know, you'd be eating something and you'd be like, right, the hair was everywhere. Or if you walk through the house in your socks, you look down and there's a halo around your feet of dog hair that gathered. It was impossible. It was pervasive. It was constant. It was everywhere. And it clung to you. And what I, what I want you to see is that there's an aspect of this that's like whenever we think about living in a fallen world contaminated by sin and death, part of the category is that you're going to come into contact with that. And that's what God is recognizing. those things that, listen, the reason things flake off of your body, like you know that skin that does that, you want to know why that's happening? because you're dying okay? You want to know why you release things from your body that are like no longer part of your living organism? It's a, like, listen, it's, it's a sign of the temporary nature that you're living under, okay? And so like just as it was constant with poke, right? You know, you'd, you'd go like, okay, what if I come home and I give my dog a hug and I got his hair all over me? I came into contact with poke and I got defiled, right? I got the hair, but what if I was nowhere near poke and I just walked around through the hall? I still got defiled, right? Because his hair was around my feet and stuff like that. We had to constantly clean. The point was, we were in, envi- in, an in an environment of pervasive hair. It was everywhere attaching itself to you. You're in an environment of sin and death and it's everywhere attaching itself to you. So from a modern perspective, a lot of times we go, well... I'm I'm offended that God would call me unclean. That's not the offense. The reality is that we're all unclean on our own in this fallen world, coming into contact with the unclean and committing sin. The real offense is that you think you would be clean before God. Given who you are and what you've done in light of who He is and what He's done. The real offense is that you would look in the mirror and go, how could God not, you know, be charmed with all of this? The process, is to go from, if you recognize you're unclean, you know you need to be made clean to come into contact with the holy. So let's wrap up. With a couple of, we can sort of see the rationale and the application. Let me just give you two things and we'll, we'll wrap up. Remember, this is the priest's handbook, and he's helping people navigate the holy God lives in our midst, and we enjoy fellowship with him, but as unclean, sinful people, how do we do that? Need for sacrifice, need for a mediator, and that, that priest guides them through these different things that reflect contact with sin and death. So the first thing that I would tell you is fear the Lord. Look at chapter 15, verse 31. Here's the whole purpose, the whole rationale. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. God is holy in their midst, and He says, I don't want you to die. I want you to be able to come in My presence and live. Fear the Lord. He doesn't compromise His holiness. He takes the unclean, addresses it, and ultimately consecrates you and makes you holy. the second thing is look to jesus how's that ultimately fulfilled how somebody like the reality of sin and death is still here but how does that change for you all of that gets fulfilled in jesus and so this old covenant that we're reading about was abrogated it's all been fulfilled it was the shadow this pointer and what it pointed to was jesus This is how you can really be made clean. This is how you can really be made holy. This is how you can really know the fellowship of God that you've been made for. Because the once for all sacrifice has been made. The forever priest has been installed. And he's your access. So look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 with me. It's in your handout. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, reference to where God is in the tabernacle, by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. The point is that we see the holiness of God is uncompromising. But the grace of God is deep. And we need only to look to Jesus to see that. So what does he say? Draw near. Come with confidence because Jesus is the sacrifice and the priest that you've needed all along. This holy God you can know and love and have fellowship and live with him forever because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're gracious. We thank you for Jesus. We we look at Leviticus and we're grateful to get this picture that you gave them, that they get to make the distinction between the realm of death Uh, this realm of contact with sin and death and the unclean and the realm of life, uh, the realm where you are and that you call people to you. You don't just leave us in our death and that that gets fulfilled in Jesus. The perfect once for all sacrifice, the great permanent enduring priest and the one who makes us clean and holy. And so we come to you in confidence, not, not because we're all that Not because we're clean on our own, but because Jesus has opened the way for us. If we have any friends here who don't know Jesus, we pray that you turn the light on. And for those of us who live in this world, sometimes we get numb to it, help us to appreciate the reality of it, because He's surely worth it. Amen.